Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Roslyn. Hi, Bernard. How, How are, are you? you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good too. And you're now in Singapore? Yes, I'm now in Singapore. But you travel all over Asia. Primarily to Hong Kong and to China to start up those offices. And we are talking to Roslyn Ku, CEO and founder of CXA Group. It's a very interesting startup because it combines insurance and benefits for employees. But before we go into that, Roslyn have a very, very interesting career because I know you started in the area of cybernetics and then subsequently ended up in the area of business. So how do you get started? It's actually a pretty funny story. I've always worked since junior high school, since we grew up poor in the ghettos of Los Angeles. And the first professional I met when I was babysitting and cleaning house was actually an engineer. So that's how I decided my major because it was the only professional I knew. So the only career I knew. But while I was in engineering school at UCLA, I actually not only liked the engineering, I was very interested in counseling. I was a a dorm counselor and a freshman counselor. So there was a major that actually combined engineering with psychology, biology, physiology, everything else. And that was human factors engineering, cybernetics. So that's actually how I got into that major. And it changed me. So the first job I took out of engineering school was to move from Los Angeles to Procter & Gamble in Iowa. And there, I was not an engineer. They chose me as a 21-year-old to actually manage two factory lines. So I was actually managing 33 people, all older and wiser than me, on three shifts. But at 21, I was not that effective because I just wasn't ready to manage so many people. And after that experience, I vowed to learn business and to someday become a great leader because I didn't want to fail again like I did. So that's when I got into business school at Columbia. It was all a a set of circumstances that moved me a certain way. I guess you have led startups and corporate turnarounds for 25 years in US and Asia. Maybe tell me a little bit about some of the interesting career lessons that you have learned. Yeah, so I think there's three things about my career. I went three different paths. After Columbia Business School, I worked for a bank and I worked in eight different roles in eight years. So everything from developing new products, making them grow to setting up new offices, but also fixing the back office and service quality. The second thing about my career is that I moved industries. After P&G and manufacturing, I moved to banking. Then I moved to two dot coms, two tech companies. Then I moved into insurance, and then I moved into brokerage. So that taught me how to learn and understand different business models. But when I moved between launching startups and then transforming companies, what it actually taught me how to do was how to envision a different future in an industry and in different industries, focus on 
resolving pain points. The other thing that I learned is that success is 10% innovation, but 90% execution. It's all about transforming a vision into reality and how to execute so you can get to the future before your competitors and how do you keep innovating to stay ahead. I learned how to successfully drive radical large-scale change. And that was key for me in all my learnings through the 25 years. And that includes being able to articulate an aspirational vision so that you can galvanize customers and employees and then building a critical mass of talent, you know, so that you can actually push through quick wins and execute. I feel like things happen for a reason and Everything I've done has led me to here, where I am now. You connected the dots and you got to work on the CXA group. But before that, you worked in Mercer and you actually expanded the business across 14 countries with 800% growth. So how did you decide to give up your corporate career and start up the CXA group? I mean, I hear the story from you and I know it's very interesting because you convey exactly what the problem was to me within 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, I understood exactly what you were doing. and Yeah, I love working at Mercer. I mean, I I had teams in 14 countries. We actually became the dominant broker in Asia. We're 50% larger than the next competitor. But for the last five years I was there, I was obsessed because I figured out a way to take it to the next level. And the only way you can take it to the next level is if you use technology. For five years, I actually begged New York headquarters to invest in technology for Asia, but they never approved it because they said, look, Latin America doesn't want this. Europe doesn't want this. You know, Canada and the U.S. doesn't. You know, we, we don't think Asia needs to be different. So finally, when the CEO global CEO in New York was fired, my global boss got fired, and that was time for me to go. What I'm doing now at CXA Group is actually building into reality my obsession for five years because I knew exactly how to resolve the pain points for my clients in the region. So that's why I left because it's been a dream that I've had. (laughs) So So I've thought about this company for five years, even before building it. So I want to ask the key question is, what is the mission of the CXA group? And what is the problem that CXA group is trying to solve? Our mission, and this is so different from what I was doing at Mercer, because it is the next level, is we think that we can help companies unlock wellness in the workplace because they're already spending money on insurance, but we can rechannel some of that money to focus on prevention instead of just treatment and protection and coverage. So we believe that companies don't have to spend more and they can actually get their employees healthier. So we are a very purpose-driven firm. We believe that we can actually do good. So that that has been our mission. So the pain points I'm trying to solve because I used to talk to our clients in all 14 countries and they had exactly the same pain points. The first thing about the region is that insurance premiums are escalating and doubling 
every three to seven years. Companies can't afford for their healthcare costs to go up so fast, especially since compensation is only moving like three to five percent a year. The reason it's escalating so fast is because employer employee health is worsening in the workplace and companies want to combat it, but they don't have the data and sometimes not the money. At the same time, while companies are spending so much money, their employees actually don't understand insurance, so they don't really value this. If you're a young, healthy employee, why do you care about insurance? Or if you're married and your working spouse is already covering for the whole family, you've duplicated the spend because you can't claim twice. Last of all, if you've ever submitted a hospital claim, you know that is entirely paper. The other thing for human resources and companies, there's too many vendors, there's too much administration, it's a huge amount of work. So what I've done with the platform is we've actually solved for these major pain points. And it's not just from buying insurance. So we've actually found ways to fix these. So from the way you convey the problems that you're trying to solve, it seems that the problems is also the same in the U.S., particularly when it comes to healthcare, right? The, I mean, the current yes. way of thinking about healthcare is to basically do more preventive healthcare versus trying to react when the illness or the condition struck the patient. Exactly, itself. exactly right. So the whole world is going through these issues, but healthcare systems are different in different regions. In Europe, it's mainly nationalized health. In the U.S., there are so many regulations with Obamacare coming. In Asia, it is the pain points, but in Asia, it's much more paper-intensive than anywhere else in the world. And there's more rapid aging out here than elsewhere in the world. And chronic disease is coming to Asia 10 years before it's coming to the West. So I think Asia is very unique. It's, it's like all of the stars have aligned so that we can kind of solve these issues all at once. Who are the current customers for CXA Group? I mean, I know you mentioned Google Visa among your clients, and I know you mm. managed to get them at a very, very short time. So who usually comes onto the platform itself? Typically the Fortune 500. So it's the largest multinationals. But what we're also finding is the large government-linked companies in Singapore are also coming on board. So... Both types of, of clients, typically anyone with highly competitive talent, so where benefits become a differentiator. But the second half of our model, which we're just about to commence, is that the largest insurers in the region actually will private label our platform so they can have their agents and their salespeople go after SMEs. So there's, you know, for the insurers, they can go after the smaller companies through their channels and through their agents and through the brokers I build in each country, I will go after the Fortune 500. So the mission of the CXA group is actually to transform the current healthcare spend into benefits and wellness program where the employees actually choose their path to good health. So how yes. does the technology platform facilitate that usage? What we do is we actually fix a budget for each employee. And because we've aggregated the entire value chain from the insurance companies to the health screening to the 
gyms, yoga, disease management, stress management, everything. Employees get to decide how they want to use that money. We have a recommendation engine that helps them choose the right level of insurance. But because we also capture the health screening results and each employee's lifestyle habits, we can make recommendations on what they can do to get healthier. And then also employers, because we had all of this data, they decided that we become the reward platform so that employees can get rewarded for becoming healthier, losing weight, managing down their cholesterol, or quitting smoking. So it is very much end-to-end. The platform actually caters to various stakeholders. I mean, probably would be good to sort of give me some understanding. How does the platform cater to the employers, the employees, the providers, and also distributors as well? Yes, it is a marketplace. So the employers, we've built an insurance exchange So employers, we've made it very easy for them to upload all of their current employee base so that we can give them benefits every time they have a new employee or someone quits or they get married and have children, they get more benefits. We've built apps so that we do capture not only the claims data, but the health screening data and also the lifestyle data and wearable device data. So HR can actually get reporting to understand which bad habits need to be modified to take down their claims costs and also to improve their employees' health. They can decide which insurer, they decide which wellness options are important. Um, But what really is key is for the first time, they actually have the data to understand if their wellness interventions are working and the right benefits for their employees. For employees, it's almost like we freed up money from their employers so that they can personalize where they are in the healthcare journey. Do I need more protection? Do I need more prevention or do I need diabetes management? Also, because we do have a lot of education and recommendations, it's much easier for them to select the right type of benefit for themselves. So it it just makes it easy. And then since we've aggregated all the wellness vendors, they no longer have to pay out of pocket. So we've made all the claims cashless. So less paper, more choice for the employees. For the insurance companies, since we have built an entire insurance exchange, we become the front end to their back office engines. We actually have data exchanges. So we've automated what used to take place with passing of paper and passing of data back and forth. So we've automated the entire insurance function from quotations to to, um, benefit selection to claims to billing. So for insurers, this becomes their front-end engine. For providers, such as wellness vendors or health management vendors or health screening, we can upload and digitize all the data and they have access to e-commerce in the workplace. So this is an ability for providers to sell to the workplace, to the actual employees. And for distributors like insurance companies and banks, they can private label our platform so that 
They can electronically sell insurance and wellness. We've actually built an entire marketplace that caters for all of these different stakeholders. I have an interesting follow-up here. So for example, for employees, if they're on your platform and if they shift to another company, would the platform still keep their data or would they have to re-register again with another employer? So we will keep their data uh, for their wellness and also any benefits that are in their name. So they can buy voluntary insurance and they can top up for their dependents. So they don't keep get to keep the group insurance, which goes with the company, but whatever's portable, they keep. And then that data goes with them when they go to their next company. So it depends on whether their next company is on our platform or not. But it's viral because employees will ask their HR, why don't you have this? I had choice versus the same old, same old insurance with paper. In starting a company, how did you acquire your initial customers? Luckily, because I wrote all the white papers and spoke at most of the conferences um, the last eight years, um, I was pretty well known to the HR community. So during my one year when I was building this in stealth in my living room, I actually spent a lot of time gathering feedback from my HR contacts on my prototype. So during the one year of planning, we had so much feedback that by the time we launched after my non-compete, we actually launch with clients and I wanted three different industry, one manufacturer, one really high tech, one financial services. So they launch with me the day after my one year not compete. And it was a pretty easy sale because if you buy your insurance through my broker versus another broker with someone else, you just get insurance with me. You get this entire platform where you can repurpose your money to wellness and help your employees get healthier. So who do you choose? And so it's been, we've made it such a compelling choice. We decided to build something 10 times better than the next competitor. So it becomes a no brainer for them to decide. So here's the interesting part from the interesting clients you have, like for example, Google Amex that in the technology sector, which are actually much more pro using a platform to help their employees to do such transactions. But you also touch on financial companies like Amex as well. So yes. do you, are there specific verticals that actually more appealing to your kind of platform? Or yes. do you see? Great question. Yeah. Yes. We won quite a few banks and tech. Those two industries have type A employees, where it's all about talent. They need to use benefits as a differentiator and let each employee choose, but also engage them in getting healthy, you know, so it's an engagement tool and reward them for getting healthier. We also have won a lot of manufacturing because they have a cost issue. How do we save on costs? Because in manufacturing, your employees are getting older and older and older with more chronic disease. Manufacturing, even though they don't spend a lot on their benefits, they have a cost management issue. So how can we help them with chronic disease management? as well as 
savings on benefits. For different reasons, we get different industries. Similar to tech and banking, pharma, oil and gas, fast-moving consumer goods, I mean, they're moving in at the same time. So anyone with a cost issue or a employer of choice issue, we have different ways to help them. You see the needs being different or are they very actually very similar because they're all trying to do preventive healthcare benefits and yes. wellness programs? Yeah, so everyone's trying to do prevention. They didn't have data before. Now they have the data and the tools, but other companies are trying to have better benefits. Like the tech companies are all trying to have better benefits than any other tech company. Both. We, we get both, but different needs for different companies. In starting CXA Group, because I know the story, because we met, and you have made a very interesting couple set of moves. One of them is you acquire brokerage, you took a bank loan, and then after that, then you raise venture capital. I guess I, I always hear the story from you. So I wanted you to tell my audience a lot about the challenges you have faced in putting the fundraising together for the company to actually reach to this state. Yes, I started out by personally seeding the company. So I took $5 million, which is our entire family savings here, and invested our own money you know so we we had so much conviction we we took five million uh, unfortunately my husband had to go back to work and my fresh my daughter who was a freshman in college had to go to work even though she had no skills right um, and then I convinced DBS to give me a five million dollar loan so that I could buy the brokerage and um, pay for building out you know the tech platform. So $10 million in, right? I had to sign a personal guarantee for all my assets around the world to do that. We also had to get MAS approval to acquire the largest broker. So that was another complication during my first year. So once my husband stopped allowing me to use any more money because he said this was enough, that's when I went out to get institutional funding. And we chose very carefully our investors. We found one fintech, one e-commerce, because I am e-commerce fund, and a health tech fund and also an insurance tech fund. So, and then the angels I got own their own brokers or their own flexible benefits firms. So I raised 8 million US from institutional investors. So we're soon about to commence series B, probably raise another maybe 25 million US so that I can buy the rest of the brokers in the other countries. So I still have about nine more countries to, to get to because most of my clients I'm going after are willing to give us the whole region because that's what I used to run at Mercer, a pan-regional model. So the only thing missing from my model is actually the brokerages. So we're about to raise some more money for the brokerage houses. And for us, it hasn't been that hard to raise money. I, I, I think I'm probably one of the few entrepreneurs that puts their entire life savings in. So they know that I have skin in the game. And also, because we've had so much traction, we, we have about 500 companies now and 100,000 participants. Once we commence the distribution model, that'll put in another million participants. So fundraising hasn't been that hard. What's been difficult is picking the right investors so that we partner together for the next five years. 
to build out the rest of the region. And really just to, again, how can I move to dominance by winning the Fortune 500 through my brokers, but leveraging the insurers to go after all of their SMEs across the region. One thing I do know from your story is that you also have a very good team that you that was supporting you in this startup. So we want to talk a little yes. bit about your team and also a little bit about diversity as well. <laughs> I actually have a diversity issue because six out of the seven of my executive team are female. So I need to hire more men. I've actually had trouble hiring enough men. Our CTO is, is male, but the rest are female. I already have 130 people. So we're actually out of chairs. We don't have enough toilets. <laughs> it's been fast growth. But my executive team, we have two PhDs. We have a doctor who we recruited from DocDoc. I have my COO actually moved from New York City. She worked on the first insurance exchange in the U.S., the Massachusetts Insurance Exchange, and she's from Harvard B. School. So it's like I went to the future to bring someone here. Our CTO uh, has been with three startups. He originally is from Microsoft in Seattle before being in Microsoft China. So we actually have a great combination of startup experience, industry experience. Our uh, chief people officer came from Standard Charter. And then our CFO has done four startups and nine financing rounds. So our executive team, I would say, is probably much more experienced than most of the startups across the region. But we're still recruiting. We're looking for a VP of engineering, hopefully male. <laughs> and uh, we need a marketing person. So, and we're we're in the midst of hiring a data scientist from from Russia. Wow. So, no, we've picked really senior person people. Our head of health consulting is an actuary that moved from the Silicon Valley. He was from a health startup that was uh, invested by Google Ventures. And before that, he headed up health consultant for Deloitte, helping companies with wellness. We've been very picky about our people, but I really have a really talented team. Mm, so you have a very diverse and a very talented team. And when Silicon Valley people talking about diversity challenges are very different from the kind of diversity <laughs> yes. challenges you have, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I do need more men. I'm quite aware I have a diversity issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're probably different. I'm, I'm probably one of the older entrepreneurs also but very experienced and very interesting i remember our first conversation when we met and one of the interesting questions we were talking about is trends in healthcare and insurance so i want to tap your brain because i know you see this space you have a kind of vision of what this space is going to look mm -hmm. like in the next few years and i remember we had a conversation about cars and insurance as well and you told yes, me that yes. you should look at the insurance and not the cars so yes maybe tell me how, what are the kind of interesting trends in healthcare and insurance that you're observing in Asia as compared to differently from U.S. and Europe? Asia is still a faster growth market than the U.S. and Europe, especially from an insurance point of view. I think the penetration rates 
are going to grow a lot because it's still relatively untapped versus the West. The other thing about Asia is because there's a talent war out here that's not in the U.S. and Europe. Benefits and wellness has to become a differentiator for being an employer of choice. So you do want to be competitive with your benefits if you're going to capture the talent. Out here, similar to the U.S., but different from Europe, it's employer paid for the benefits. So it's employers who have this great incentive to get people healthier so that their premiums don't keep increasing 10 to 40% a year, which is what is growing out here versus in the West, which is in the single digits. And because chronic disease does come to Asia 10 years before the West, and I think this has a lot to do with the food, the rapid aging and urbanization all happening at the same time, we have a more urgent need to actually look at changing and modifying lifestyles so that people don't get sick. If I can help do all of that and make it less paper intensive, because in Asia, this is the last part where insurance came. How can we digitize all of insurance and wellness in one place and let each individual decide where they are in the healthcare journey? I think that's a good thing. So it's because the stars do align in Asia with all of these things happening at once that we actually have a niche in the market and a small window in the market to be first movers and to really help at the same time. You see this is changing. In The insurance industry is going to change in the next decade or so. I mean, if you look at cars now, we have a lot of data about cars, right? So mm. the premiums on insurance will change. How much do you think data will be driving a lot about what insurance and preventive healthcare in the next decade? Oh, it's all about the data. Because to me, healthcare is so personal for each person. Every single person has different wellness and healthcare needs. They have different insurance needs, depending on their life stage and their health risk. So it's all about the data data to personalize to each person and to each firm. And if we can use money that companies are already spending to do that, then healthcare and insurance becomes personal. What that means is later on, insurance companies will have the data to individually underwrite just like in car insurance, soon you will know every single person's driving habits. So you know, you know, do you have to charge more for one individual versus the next? It's the same with people, except people, there are even more differentiation. So how do we help the unhealthy become healthier? How do we incentivize them? Do we scare them using a face that ages, depending on how, how many bad habits you have? Or do you incentivize them by getting them aware of you know, why it's better to be healthy? But because we have the data, each firm can actually personalize to their demographics within each country and build metrics behind the percentage of employees that 
have lifestyle habits, right? You know, could we help at that level? And it's only with technology can you personalize to that level. And that's what we built. Personalized to each employee using money you already have now. So to me, data is the key to wellness and insurance. Mm. And that's what we've done. We just... Companies don't have to spend more, spend the same money. Now you can do all of this. It's a bit similar to in Asia where you have governments taking a more private public kind of model, which is a mixture of both. And I know Singapore has been doing that for the longest time, but there's this kind of shift in Asia that I think in healthcare insurance will be pretty interesting for years to come. We still have one more part of the conversation that I really want to talk to you on because you're one of the more inspiring entrepreneurs and also women in leadership. So Mm. I think probably the first question I probably want to ask is what will be your advice to men and women in leadership? Yeah, I I guess I'll, I'll take my own experience. And it's only in looking back that I realized this, but every success is all about getting the right talent. And to attract the right talent, you have to be a great leader. And also you have to develop people and their skills. My advice for people in leadership is to actually gain as much experience over the years to actually stretch and hone your own leadership skills. So for me, it was really launching startups and transformations, right? Where there is a massive need to actually learn how to execute as well as to come up with the innovation. So I always encourage people to get as much leadership experience as possible because you can only learn to lead by leading. You don't learn to lead by reading a book. Choose roles that stretches you so much so that you can both articulate a vision as well as execute because success really is a combination of innovation and execution. Much more execution than innovation, but you have to do both. So Try to gain experience and take roles that take you out of your comfort zone so that you learn to lead. Because once you learn to lead, you can actually build a critical mass of high potential talent. And then you have to nurture that talent and help your talent, help your staff develop their leadership skills. So it's really taking the super hard roles. To me, startups and turnarounds are really hard because you you have to implement change. You're not just maintaining, but that's the best way to learn and learn as many functions as possible. So I have a penultimate question and it stems from a com- conversations that I have with my wife all the time. While I admire Elon Musk, Steve Jobs and Jack Dorsey having managed two companies at the same time as CEO, my wife will always come back with a comeback line to say that, Hey, you know, a woman has two startups, family and their startup career or their corporate yes. career. So the, my penultimate question, what is your advice to women in trying to balance between family and career while also the things that they need to do in pursuing their career? I've struggled with this so much <laughs> my entire life because <laughs> I've always had to adapt my work around my family life events. And I think every female, every working mother has to do this. When my daughter was born, I was a banker on Wall Street. 
So I had to leave work by five o'clock in order to relieve the nanny who had night classes. Otherwise, my daughter's left alone, right? <laughs> so, so I had to adapt and I, I had to change my role then to adapt to having a child. You know, and, and then, you know, most of the time at the bank, I just expressed for six months. When my daughter was one, my husband said, okay, we're going to move to the UK. And so I got a bank transfer to the UK, but then... You know, when the movers came, they said, OK, you're going to move to Singapore instead. So I actually stayed home for three and a half years because I didn't have a job in Singapore. I was a trailing spouse and I only went back to work when I invested in a dot com and started launching it for my son. I actually stayed home with him. I, I, I actually breastfed him for 18 months. So he was running around and talking. <laughs> so they used to call him cookies and milk. Right. And then with, I was in the startup in 2001, I found out my daughter had epilepsy. So I left the startup world. And it's only now that when my kids are 22 and 18, I mean, 20 and 18, that I can devote full time to a startup. So I don't know. It's so hard for me to answer this question. I've always adapted my work to my family. And there's a time and place for everything. So I think women have no choice but to do the two. It's just how do you work while you're going through your life? I've just adapted all the time. But right now, I have the time <laughs> to build a great startup. So your wife is so right. I mean, I agree. It's... How do you balance? What really helped was moving to Asia and having live-in help. That's been huge for me. And because of that, I've spent the last 19 years here. And I'll probably stay here forever, right? Because this is my life. I, I view Singapore as my home now, not the U.S. anymore. So, yeah, no, all I can say is it's so personal. Balancing family and work depends on what's happening in your family at the time. So somehow women make it work. They do have to worry about this. I think that's a very interesting reflection and probably i think a lot of the women would i think face the same kind of dilemmas that you do in balancing their work and their family life and i guess probably men should probably have to take up more equal responsibility which we are all trying to we have to do our part too but hey um, my, my husband's been very supportive for my son my husband's the one that took him for his college search he's the one that sends my daughter back to college in boston so he's been picking up everything for me since i've started the startup he's taken over the family so um like Sheryl Sandberg, right? I'm so thankful. My husband's so supportive. He's also the one that said, okay, for me spending $5 million of our whole savings, right? So you need a family that's very supportive. So we will probably talk to you sometime again. But one important last question, Roslyn, where do my audience find you? LinkedIn, Facebook. We have a pretty active site, our website. So yeah, no, I'm always around. I do mentor a, a lot of women and also startup people. And, so, you, and you have a Twitter account, right? Yes, and Twitter. Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll put all these links on the show notes so they, they, they can connect with you too. Great. You can, you can find me at bleongcw.bernardleong.com or subscribe to us at Acast, SoundCloud, Stitcher and iTunes and please drop us a feedback. We would always want to hear from you. Once again, Roslyn, thank you for giving me the time to have a great chat with you and I wish you all the best with the CXA group. I think you're great. doing great. Thank you.